Part three of the Life of Saint Macrina by Saint Gregory of Nyssa, translated by W. K. Lowther Clark, B.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gregory returns to Macrina, who recalls the events of her childhood. But when we saw her again, for she did not allow us to spend time by ourselves in idleness, she began to recall her past life beginning with childhood, and describing it all in order as in a history. She recounted as much as she could remember of the life of our parents, and the events that took place both before and after my birth. But her aim throughout was gratitude towards God, for she described our parents' life not so much from the point of view of the reputation they enjoyed in the eyes of contemporaries on account of their riches, as an example of the divine blessing. My father's parents had their goods confiscated for confessing Christ. Our maternal grandfather was slain by the imperial wrath, and all his possessions were transferred to other masters. Nevertheless, their life abounded so in faith that no one was named above them in those times. And moreover, after their substance had been divided into nine parts, according to the number of the children, the share of each was so increased by God's blessing that the income of each of the children exceeded the prosperity of the parents. But when it came to Macrina herself, she kept nothing of the things assigned to her in the equal division between brothers and sisters, but all her share was given into the priest's hands according to the divine command. Moreover, her life became such by God's help that her hands never ceased to work according to the commandment. Never did she even look for help to any human being, nor did human charity give her the opportunity of a comfortable existence. Never were petitioners turned away, yet never did she appeal for help. But God secretly blessed the little seeds of her good works till they grew into a mighty fruit. As I told my own trouble, and all that I had been through, first my exile at the hands of the Emperor of Valens, on account of the faith, and then the confusion in the church that summoned me to conflicts and trials, my great sister said, Will you not cease to be insensible to the divine blessings? Will you not remedy the ingratitude of your soul? Will you not compare your position with that of your parents? And yet, as regards worldly things, we make our boast of being well-born and thinking we come of a noble family. Our father was greatly esteemed as a young man for his learning. In fact, his fame was established throughout the law courts of the province. Subsequently, though, he excelled all others in rhetoric. His reputation did not extend beyond Pontus. But he was satisfied with fame in his own land. But you, she said, are renowned in cities and peoples and nations. Churches summon you as an ally and director, and do you not see the grace of God in it all? Do you fail to recognize the cause of such great blessings, that it is your parents' prayers that are lifting you up on high, you that have little or no equipment within yourself for such success? Thus she spoke, and I longed for the length of the day to be further extended, that she might never cease delighting our ears with sweetness. 
but the voice of the choir was summoning us to the evening service, and sending me to church, the great one retired once more to God in prayer, and thus she spent the night. THE EVENTS OF THE NEXT DAY Macrina's LAST HOURS But when the day came, it was clear to me from what I saw that the coming day was the utmost limit of her life in the flesh, since the fever had consumed all her innate strength. But she, considering the weakness of our minds, was contriving how to divert us from our sorrowful anticipations, and once more with those beautiful words of hers poured out what was left of her suffering soul with short and difficult breathing. Many, indeed, and varied were the emotions of my heart at what I saw, for nature herself was afflicting me and making me sad, as was only to be expected, since I could no longer hope ever to hear such a voice again. Nor, as yet, was I reconciled to the thought of losing the common glory of our family. But my mind, as it were inspired by the spectacle, supposed that she would actually rise superior to the common lot. For that she did not even in her last breath find anything strange in the hope of the resurrection, nor even shrink at the departure from this life, but with lofty mind continued to discuss up to her last breath the convictions she had formed from the beginning about this life. All this seemed to me more than human. Rather did it seem as if some angel had taken human form with a sort of incarnation, to whom it was nothing strange that the mind should remain undisturbed, since he had no kinship or likeness with this life of the flesh, and so the flesh did not draw the mind to think on its afflictions. Therefore I think she revealed to the bystanders that divine and pure love of the invisible bridegroom, which she kept hidden and nourished in the secret places of the soul, and she published abroad the secret disposition of her heart, her hurrying towards him whom she desired, that she might speedily be with him, loosed from the chains of the body. For in very truth her course was directed towards virtue, and nothing else could divert her attention. Mucrina's Dying Prayer Most of the day had now passed, and the sun was declining towards the west. Her eagerness did not diminish, but as she approached her end, as if she discerned the beauty of the bridegroom more clearly, she hastened towards the beloved with the greater eagerness. Such thoughts as these did she utter, no longer to us who were present, but to him in person on whom she gazed fixedly. Her couch had been turned towards the east, and ceasing to converse with us, she spoke henceforward to God in prayer, making supplication with her hands, and whispering with a low voice, so that we could just hear what was said. Such was the prayer. We need not doubt that it reached God, and that she too was hearing his voice. Thou, O Lord, hast freed us from the fear of death. Thou hast made the end of this life the beginning to us of true life. Thou for a season restest our bodies in sleep, and awakest them again at the last trump. Thou givest our earth, which thou hast fashioned with thy hands, to the earth to keep in safety. One day thou wilt take again what thou hast given, 
transfiguring with immortality and grace our mortal and unsightly remains. Thou hast saved us from the curse and from sin, having become both for our sakes. Thou hast broken the heads of the dragon, who had seized us with his jaws in the yawning gulf of disobedience. Thou hast shown us the way of resurrection, having broken the gates of hell, and brought to naught him who had the power of death, the devil. Thou hast given a sign to those that fear thee, in the symbol of the holy cross, to destroy the adversary and save our life. O God eternal, to whom I have been attached from my mother's womb, whom my soul has loved with all its strength, to whom I have dedicated both my flesh and my soul from my youth up until now. Do thou give me an angel of light to conduct me to the place of refreshment, where is the water of rest, in the bosom of the Holy Fathers. Thou didst break the flaming sword and didst restore to paradise the man that was crucified with thee and implored thy mercies. Remember me too in thy kingdom because I, too, was crucified with thee, having nailed my flesh to the cross for fear of thee, and of thy judgments have I been afraid. Let not the terrible chasm separate me from thy elect, nor let the slanderer stand against me in the way, nor let my sin be found before thy eyes. If in anything I have sinned in word or deed or thought, led astray by the weakness of our nature, O thou who hast power on earth to forgive sins, forgive me, that I may be refreshed and may be found before thee when I put off my body, without defilement on my soul. But may my soul be received into thy hands, spotless and undefiled, as an offering before thee. As she said these words, she sealed her eyes and mouth and heart with the cross, and gradually her tongue dried up with the fever. She could articulate her words no longer, and her voice died away, and only by the trembling of her lips and the motion of her hands did we recognize that she was praying. Meanwhile, evening had come and a lamp was brought in. All at once she opened the orb of her eyes and looked towards the light, clearly wanting to repeat the thanksgiving sung at the lighting of the lamps. But her voice failed, and she fulfilled her intention in the heart, and by moving her hands, while her lips stirred in sympathy with her inward desire. But when she had finished the thanksgiving, and her hand brought to her face to make the sign had signified the end of the prayer, she drew a great deep breath, and closed her life and her prayer together. Gregory Performs the Last Offices and now that she was breathless and still, remembering the command that she had given at our first meeting, telling me she wished her hands laid on her eyes, and the accustomed offices done for the body by me, I brought her hands, all numb with the disease, on to her holy face, only that I might not seem to neglect her bidding. For her eyes needed none to compose them, being covered gracefully by the lids, just as happens in natural sleep. The lips were suitably closed and the hands laid reverently on the breast, 
and the whole body had automatically fallen into the right position, and in no way needed the help of the layers out. THE SISTERS LAMENT FOR THEIR abbess. Now my mind was becoming unnerved in two ways, from the sight that met my gaze, and the sad wailing of the virgins that sounded in my ears. So far they had remained quiet and suppressed their grief, restraining their impulse to mourn for fear of her, as if they dreaded her rebuke even when her voice was silent, lest in any way a sound should break forth from them contrary to her command, and their mistress be grieved in consequence. But when they could no longer subdue their anguish in silence, and grief like some inward fire was smouldering in their hearts, all at once a bitter and irrepressible cry broke out, so that my reason no longer remained calm, but a flood of emotion, like a watercourse in spate, swept it away, and so, neglecting my duties, I gave myself up to lamentation. Indeed, the cause for the maiden's weeping seemed to me just and reasonable, for they were not bewailing the loss of human companionship and guidance, nor any other such thing as men grieve over when disaster comes but it seemed as if they had been torn away from their hope in God, and the salvation of their souls, and so they cried and bewailed in this manner. The light of our eyes has gone out. The light that guided our souls has been taken away. The safety of our life is destroyed. The seal of immortality is removed. The bond of restraint has been taken away. The support of the weak has been broken, the healing of the sick removed. In thy presence the night became to us as day, illumined with pure life, but now even our day will be turned to gloom. Saddest of all in their grief were those who called on her as mother and nurse. These were they whom she picked up, exposed by the roadside in the time of famine. She had nursed and reared them, and led them to the pure and stainless life. But when, as it were from sleep, I recovered my thoughts, I looked towards that holy face, and it seemed as if it rebuked me for the confusion of the noisy mourners, so I called to the sisters with a loud voice. Look at her, and remember her commands, by which she trained you to be orderly and decent in everything. One occasion for tears did this divine soul ordain for us, recommending us to weep at the time of prayer, which now we may do, by turning the lamentations into psalmody in the same strain. Vestiana comes to help Gregory. I had to shout in order to be heard above the noise of the mourners. Then I besought them to go away for a while to the neighboring house, but asked that some of those whose services she used to welcome when she was alive should stay behind. Among these was a lady of gentle birth, who had been famous in youth for wealth, good family, physical beauty, and every other distinction. She had married a man of high rank and lived with him a short time. Then, with her body still young, she was released from marriage and chose the great Macrina as protection and guardian of her widowhood and spent her time mostly with the virgins, learning from them the life of virtue. The lady's name was Vestiana, and her father was one of those who composed the Council of Senators. 
To her I said that there could be no objection now, at any rate, to putting finer clothing on the body, and adorning that pure and stainless form with fair linen clothes. But she said one ought to learn what the saint had thought proper in these matters, for it was not right that anything at all should be done by us contrary to what she would have wished. But just what was dear and pleasing to God would be her desire also. Now there was a lady called Lampathea, leader of the band of sisters, a deaconess in rank. She declared that she knew Macrina's wishes in the matter of burial exactly. When I asked her about them, for she happened to be present at our deliberations, she said with tears, The saint resolved that a pure life should be her adornment, that this should deck her body in life and her grave in death. But so far as clothes to adorn the body go, she procured none when she was alive, nor did she store them for the present purpose. So that not even if we wanted will there be anything more than what we have here, since no preparation is made for this need. Is it not possible, said I, to find in the store cupboard anything to make a fitting funeral? Store cupboard indeed, said she. You have in front of you all her treasure. There is the cloak. There is the head covering. There the well-worn shoes on the feet. This is all her wealth. These are her riches. There is nothing stored away in secret places beyond what you see, or put away safely in boxes or bedroom. She knew of one storehouse alone for her wealth, the treasure in heaven. There she had stored her all. Nothing was left on earth. Suppose, said I, I were to bring some of the things I have got ready for the funeral. Should I be doing anything of which she would not have approved? I do not think, said she, that this would be against her wish. For had she been living, she would have accepted such honor from you on two grounds. Your priesthood, which she always prized so dear, and your relationship for she would not have repudiated what came to her from her brother. This was why she gave commands that your hands were to prepare her body for burial. End of Part 3